This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hello, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank Giving Thought in which we look at big issues and themes that are relevant to the work of philanthropy and civil society. And this is episode 21. Uh, Yeah, we've made it this far, almost as far if we were a person as someone who could drink in the United States, assuming that uh, fortnights were equivalent to years somehow, uh, and this podcast was actually a person and not a fictional entity, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Anyway... (laughs) This week's episode, we're going to look at a theme that is very recurrent in the the history of philanthropy and is kind of really important um, in shaping fundraising and all sorts of different things. And that is new money versus old money. Um, And the reason that this whole question of kind of the difference between different types of wealth came to the front of my mind recently was I saw a really interesting article uh, in the MIT Technology Review, actually, that was writing up about um, a paper that had just been published uh, using machine learning, inevitably, um, but to create a model of um, wealth creation. And what they showed through that was they sort of simulated um, different starting conditions um, for different kind of fictional individuals uh, and then ran the simulation And it came out basically showing quite clearly that there was a massive element of luck determining um, which of those individuals ended up um, making large amounts of money, which kind of suggested that luck plays an enormous role um, in wealth. And this um, kind of raised the question in my mind, it's just quite an interesting thing for philanthropy and goes back to something that I've kind of thought about quite a lot and and written about, um, about the sort of the different ways in which your perception of your own wealth, if you're a philanthropist, determines your attitude towards giving. Um, So to kick it off, um, I guess it's probably worth just fixing what it is that we're talking about, because I think there are kind of various different types of wealth that we could categorize there's an obvious distinction between inherited and created wealth i think so either you've kind of been born into a family that has money and that money's been passed on to you but you haven't really done anything to create that wealth yourself then there's created wealth um, and i think that can probably be subdivided um, roughly into entrepreneurial wealth so kind of wealth that you have created yourself from nothing and managerial wealth which is sort of earned income where it's been created in some sense but you have earned it through having a a salary job because i think those are two quite different things um, and there is, you know, quite a lot of evidence, both historical, but also kind of from other disciplines of, of academia to show that this does have a, a massive shaping effect on um, people's attitude towards philanthropy. There was some interesting analysis a few years ago from the University of Southampton, who went through all of the written down pledges at that point from the um, uh, Gates Buffett uh, giving pledge, which is interesting, actually, on the website, they kind of Uh, publish all of the things people have said in terms of explaining why they've signed up to the pledge and they looked at the at those people and determined that a large majority of them could be classified as coming from uh, created wealth 
um, and that you know in terms of the narrative they gave, there were some very clear signs that they sort of were more more had more of a tendency to have a positive attitude um, towards philanthropy. And I guess there's a couple of things we can say about why that might intuitively be the case. I mean, certainly the distinct when distinguishing between inherited wealth and created wealth, one obvious difference is um, a sort of distinction between stewardship and ownership. So if you come from inherited wealth, um, it's quite likely that your attitude towards it is more likely to be one of stewardship or certainly for, for many people. So the idea there is, you know, you recognize that that wealth has been in your family for a long period of time has been passed down to you and you see your responsibility as maintaining that wealth so that it can then be passed on to the next generation. So it isn't really your right or within your gift, as it were, to, to give very large amounts of it away. And contrast that with the um, the attitude of people who've made that money themselves in some sense, and they might feel an outright sense of ownership and as if it's pretty much up to them what they do with it, up to and including giving it all away. And you also see that reflected in the attitudes of quite a lot of philanthropists nowadays who say things along the lines of, you know, they don't want to leave all their money to their children because they think it would spoil them or ruin them and that it's important to them that their children, in some sense, have to kind of make their own way in the world. Again, making that distinction between a sort of positive view of created wealth and a slightly negative view of inherited wealth. I guess there's some other stuff as well which is linked to that. So one one is probably a sense of confidence um, in a way that, you know, that you could make the money again. Um, I guess if you have built a business once and made a lot of money for instance you're more likely to believe that if you gave it all away or lost it that you could do it again whereas if you inherited that money you might have no clear idea of what you would do if you gave it all away and therefore be much more risk averse i think there's also you know it's important to say something about the the role of social status here both kind of historically and and nowadays um in lots of places, um, there is kind of a long tradition of a kind of aristocratic uh, class, which probably comes from um, inherited money or kind of landed wealth. Certainly here in the UK, that's very true. Um, and over time, uh, certainly historically in periods like the Victorian era, philanthropy became one means by which people who came from sort of non-traditional wealthy backgrounds, so the new industrialists, could try to uh, carve a place for themselves in society because even though they often had a lot more money than than these people who came from landed wealth they were still looked down on in many ways and this seems to be a large part of the the story of the the role of philanthropy in the the united states as well where philanthropy's always been a huge part of the the kind of climbing the ladder in terms of social status and certainly, somebody pointed out to me a few years back that, that actually they thought one of the biggest differences between the culture of philanthropy in the UK and the US was that here in the UK, we have things like the, the honours system, you know, getting knighthoods and, and titles and OBEs and that kind of thing. And they didn't really have the same sort of thing in the US. And to some degree, philanthropy played a part in filling that gap and that's why there was more philanthropy because there weren't any other ways of, of climbing uh, the social ladder coming back just uh, finally in this section to um, that idea of luck that we mentioned um, at the start when we were talking about the that paper in uh, MIT technology review it's interesting that that paper was published but it's very much not a, a new idea that that luck plays a big role and actually 
when you look at the um, the writings or the thoughts of um, some of the kind of most well-known and major philanthropists, both now and historically, one of the key defining characteristics, I think, is that they have a sense of the role that luck or um, their kind of the support of wider society has played in making their wealth possible. And this plays into a sense that they have a responsibility to give something back. So there is some sort of social contract. And just to give you an example of how that's played out sort of historically and in a modern context. Um, so uh, just from the, um, the biography of uh, Andrew Carnegie, um, it can say um, by David Nassau, I think, um, just to quote, he said, he emphasized his good fortune in having moved to Pittsburgh with his family at precisely the moment the city was becoming a center of iron and steel manufacturing because of its ideal location on the East-West Railway Network and its proximity to iron ore and coal deposits. Both men recognised they'd not earned their fortunes by themselves and thus had no right to spend it on themselves or on their families. As Carnegie put it, it was not any individual, talented and hard-working though he may be, but the community that was the true source of wealth, and it was to the community that the millionaire's dollars should be returned. And we can also compare that with the words of Warren Buffett, who in his own um, letter explaining why he got involved in founding the Giving Pledge, said... um, Both my children and I won what I call the Avarian Lottery. Uh, My luck was accentuated by my living in a market system that sometimes produces distorted results, though overall it serves our country well. I've worked in an economy that rewards someone who saves the lives of others on a battlefield with a medal, rewards a great teacher with thank you notes from parents, but rewards those who can detect the mispricing of securities with sums reaching into the billions. In short... Fate's distribution of long straws is wildly capricious. So I think these are really interesting statements because the kind of acknowledgement of the element that luck plays in creating wealth uh, kind of creates a certain degree of humility, I think. And when that's missing and people believe, you know, their own sort of self-mythos that they are solely responsible for creating that wealth, it strikes me that they're less likely to be kind of convinced of the compelling need to, to give back to others. And that could be problematic. Okay, so in the next section, we're going to go on and uh, take this idea a bit further and look at ways in which the kind of recognition of the importance of the element of luck might be practically put to work uh, in terms of driving more philanthropy. So stay tuned for that. And we are back. Okay, Um, in this uh, second section of, uh, of the podcast... Uh, as I said before the break, we're going to take the idea um, uh, that kind of luck plays a role um, in in wealth, people's recognition of that, and um, have a look, you know, take that to its extreme in terms of the idea of kind of what does it mean to, to give away wealth that you don't even actually have at this point? Um, and is this potentially one of the best ways to kind of make it easy for people to give? Um, So this is the idea of kind of pledging or pre-commitment, which you obviously see in a practical sense in things like the giving pledge, um, where often, you know, people, they're not making the gift at the time, they're just making a commitment to give away um, more than 50% of their wealth by the time they die. And there's some pretty strong economic evidence that pre-commitment can be a very effective way of getting uh, people giving more, although there's some kind of interesting wrinkles in the way in which that actually works best in practice. Um, So basically, 
you need you've got three concepts that you need to to understand here so one is the the warm glow which we've talked about a lot on the podcast and this is the idea of a kind of psychic or psychological reward that people get from their giving um this is the kind of impure altruism notion that james andrioni and others have developed Another is the pain of payment, which is the kind of um, the the downside of making a donation. So you get a warm glow from it, but at the same time, you know, it feels bad in some ways to part with money. And then the third concept, which is related to that, is um, loss aversion. So this is um, something that comes from the work of Daniel Kahneman and others and is a big factor in things like nudge theory. And this is the idea that we are more resistant to losing things that we already have um, because uh, there's kind of psychologically um, that's worse, even if the net result of, of what we're being asked to do is the same. And there's some interesting studies, one paper in particular, which I'll put um, links to in the show notes, which showed that um, if you use pre-commitment, so asking people to make a pledge at a later date, that can be a very effective tool in getting people to give more. And they did sort of economic experiments around this. Um, and the reason is really that, you know, you can if you can find ways of retaining as much of, as possible of the warm glow, um, so making people feel good at the time, but deferring the pain of payment and sort of maximizing the psychological distance from that, then that can be very effective. But you have to be quite careful in terms of the way that you do this. And the key thing, in a way, is that it it only really works if you're talking about money that you don't already have. So if, for instance, you're asking somebody to make a commitment to give away future earnings in six months' time or future lottery winnings even, that's even better – then that's really quite effective and people tend to commit quite significantly larger amounts of money than, than they would if you just asked for a straightforward donation. But actually, if you ask people to commit at a later date to give away money that they already have, they actually commit less than they would if they gave because they get a marginally reduced uh, warm glow because they're not actually making the act of giving right then. But also the, they, they still get the loss aversion because they have the money and the psychological distance between that and the idea of giving it away isn't big enough. So you get kind of the worst of, of all worlds. So, you know, it's kind of interesting to see that from a fundraiser's point of view, there's definitely something in the idea that, you know, getting people to commit to give away money that they don't yet have um, is really a good idea. But you, you do have to be careful that you're not inadvertently asking for pledges that are going to have a kind of um, a negative effect on people's willingness to give. And in kind of practical terms, we, we do see some interesting examples of this idea. So in a modern context, there's starting to be quite a strong movement sort of born out of Silicon Valley to an extent and certainly the kind of the tech sphere and, to, and the kind of startup tech sphere. Um, where people are building pledges um, to give a certain percentage of profits um, or or even sort of beyond profit. So um, there's an interesting thing called the 111 model that was pioneered by Salesforce under Mark Benioff, where I think there was a pledge to give 1% of annual profits, 1% of staff time and 1% of assets i can't i can never remember what the third one is per annum uh for philanthropic purposes and this has kind of been replicated by a number of other businesses and has kind of grown into a movement and there are organizations like the founders pledge that that are kind of based very much on this idea which is getting people to sort of pre-commit to 
give significant amounts as and when they make a lot of money um, through their business going up in value or them selling that business on the basis that it's easier to make that commitment when you don't actually have the money because you don't have the problems of loss aversion and if you can make that commitment fairly binding then you know you potentially are kind of locking in a lot of money for for future philanthropy but it's interesting to see that this is also you know as ever it gets really boring when i say this but there's some some great historical examples of this and one of my favorite ones my favorite sort of philanthropy stories is about a um, victorian donor they're always victorians um, called Baron Seymour de Hirsch, who was um, a very wealthy financier um, from from a kind of moneyed background himself, it has to be said. Um, but he made a lot more money um, through his banking, so he kind of counted as, as entrepreneurial wealth. Um, but the, the interesting thing about him, he was a, a big sort of player in Jewish philanthropy circles at the time, because there was a very sort of strong culture of, of Jewish philanthropy in, in London um, in the 19th century. Um, but his uh, contribution to sort of innovative philanthropy was the, um, the the model of horse racing philanthropy. So as well as being a, uh, a very successful financier, he was also a very keen racehorse owner and an extremely successful one. So he owned particularly a horse called La Flèche that won a number of um, major horse races um, in the UK. Um, and he decided that, you know, he, he did it because he loved horse racing and he didn't particularly want to make a lot of money, but found he was actually making an embarrassing amount of money. So what he decided to do was pledge to give away pretty much all of his earnings from uh, races that La Flesh, um was running in and other horses that, that he bet on um, to the charities that he worked with, which was a number of hospitals and, and so on. Um, and just to, to read you um, from, I think it's from David Owen's book on philanthropy, um, the, just something, uh, a bit of colour about this story. So it says, um, he channeled most of these sums to London hospitals, which thus found themselves receiving handsome windfalls um, as much as £30,000 in 1892. Um, this banner year was chiefly owing to the performance of the Hirschville La Flèche, which won the Oaks, the St. Ledger, the 1000 Guineas and the Cambridgeshire. There was a rubbing of hands in hospital offices when the Hirsch colours appeared to be having a good year, and gloom when his horses were running badly, though at such times he might supplement his winnings so the charities would not lose too heavily. So you have this weird idea that uh, charities were sort of sitting around following the form books and waiting for the racing results to see whether they'd get a big donation, which I'm not sure is necessarily a model anybody would follow to the letter nowadays, but, but does sort of, I think, demonstrate something interesting about the idea that it is... Um, significantly easier to just give away money that you don't yet have or um, because in a sense then you can convince yourself that you never really had it so you don't really have any pain of parting with it so I think that draws that section to close um, in the final section I want to go on and uh, bring things just round to I think an interesting question about what are potentially some of the newest forms of wealth that are out there now and and potentially ones that are coming in the future and, you know, is there a possibility to tap into those and what kind of interesting features might they have? Um, so stay tuned for that one. So we are back again. Uh, and this is section three of this episode on new money versus old money. 
And in this final section, I want to look at um, the idea that there could be kind of entirely new forms of wealth uh, out there in the world today. And um, particularly, I want to look at the um, the notion of crypto wealth. So this is people who've made a lot of money by buying into thing, uh, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ether um, early on and are now sitting on sort of vast fortunes that are extremely unexpected. And I've been you know working around kind of cryptocurrency and blockchain for a few years and i recently wrote a blog um that i'll put some links in the show notes to kind of coming back to asking some questions um that i'd ask when i first got into this about whether it'd be possible for charities to tap into this possible sort of new form of of money and whether there was kind of an, an entirely new pool of donors with special characteristics um and sort of whether that was possible and a good idea. Um, and I think there is kind of something interesting to be said there. I think I should probably, you know, first of all, up front, put a very clear caveat that, that I'm not making any recommendations, but I certainly wouldn't recommend that any charity went out there and started um, trying to get its hands on Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency and holding on to it at the moment. These things are complex they're largely unproven they're extremely volatile and as such they just aren't really suitable uh assets for charities to be putting any money into so i think even though i do think there is something interesting in the idea of charities trying to tap into this pool of wealth i think they need to find ways of doing it that don't involve them holding on to uh cryptocurrency for any uh period of time and that is possible and there's some detail in that blog i mentioned about that but but putting that aside one quest for one second and assuming that you you can sort of uh square that circle you know what what is the opportunity here well i think you know it's very clear that there is an extraordinary amount of money at the moment um in cryptocurrency i mean yes it it is hugely volatile and there is a question about whether we're in the middle of a bubble and whether you know in the longer term these things will turn uh, turn out to have absolutely no value whatsoever um i don't think that's true i think there probably you know is going to be a market correction or a series of market corrections of some sort but at the moment you know the the, the sort of clear truth is that there there is money out there there are people who've made a lot of money by getting involved in this stuff early on and you know it might be in some ways going back to what we've been talking about in this episode the best kind of money to try and tap for philanthropy because it is largely unexpected so you know it's kind of money that people never really expected to have there's a very clear element of luck in it although you know it's possible nowadays some people who've made crypto wealth are convincing themselves that it was all due to their own genius which i think would be misguided but you know these are people who might well want to to put that to use for social good and kind of looking for opportunities to do it um there's also you know going to the idea of pre-commitment we're talking about then um pledging possibly you know using kind of pledging models to get them to pledge against future increases in value i mean if you believe that cryptocurrency is going to go up getting people to kind of give some of it away or pledge to give it away um at a at a later date in a way that sort of didn't fall foul of loss aversion and you might get larger amounts as a result don't know it's you know certainly possible i guess one of the things that i think is particularly interesting about this is whether there are going to be some sort of particular characteristics to this new type of wealth and i say that because cryptocurrency in particular and to some degree sort of you know wider blockchain technology is a 
is a technological field that also comes with a lot of ideological background and baggage. So, you know, the history of it and it kind of stemming out of Bitcoin and the whole sort of cypherpunk movement means that it a lot of the people who got in early will have done so partly because they were very sort of technologically savvy, but also because they had probably some pretty strong beliefs in kind of libertarian principles and the idea that traditional institutions of state and government couldn't really be trusted and you know to some extent there's possibly an argument that this will make them more willing to give to charities because they might see that as preferable to you know giving to the state via taxation um but then the flip side is you know if these people are skeptical about large centralized intermediary institutions which is you know kind of the the general tenor of 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 um, thought in in that community then that probably applies just as much to charities as it does to to any other institutions because they're very likely to be seen as part of the establishment and therefore part of the problem so even if these people do want to give to charity it might well be that they are more interested in giving to small startups or thing you know kind of organizations with a social purpose that aren't traditional charities um and that is actually largely reflected in where we've seen crypto donations go so far i mean they they mostly go to small organizations uh ones that are in some way have a kind of technological background um are kind of you know based on principles of data and analysis um possibly you know linked into the effective altruism movement which is obviously tied in very much with sort of silicon valley and and that new breed of tech donor uh, and you know that sort of seems to fit with the the ideals and the worldview of people who might have made money in um in crypto uh cryptocurrency as well um so i guess i, I don't necessarily have any answers to these questions and i i guess nobody does so far because as far as i know nobody's done a very clear kind of analysis of who all these people are that have made money through um through cryptocurrency and kind of what their attitudes towards giving might be but it it just sort of raises interesting questions um and i think the 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 sort of generalized question that we can extrapolate from this and from looking at the sort of historical evidence about uh wealth and inherited wealth versus created wealth and attitudes to wealth is that understanding where someone's wealth has come from and the different ways in which people can be rich and what that might mean for their own perception of their wealth and therefore what that might mean for their attitude towards giving it away is extremely important if you want to tap into it for philanthropy because i think just assuming that rich people are a homogenous mass and there's no distinction to be made between people who have sold a business or you know worked for an investment bank or inherited their money or worked for a tech company is I think totally missing the point and um you know by not being fine-grained enough you stand very little chance of uh kind of tapping into that that wealth uh, uh, with any degree of success so i guess on that note uh, i'll probably bring things to a close um it just remains to say uh you know as ever thanks for listening um if you've got ideas for uh things that we could be doing on the podcast drop us a line at giving thought at cafonline.org um i should give a shout out to all the people who responded very positively when i put out a call on twitter the other day for ideas for podcast episodes so thanks to all of you and i'll definitely be doing some of those ideas um as future podcast episode themes um if you want to follow me on twitter i'm at rodri underscore h underscore davis if you like the stuff that we uh, talk about on here and want to read more um 
go to the CAF website, check out the Giving Thought pages, um, and there's all kinds of material and reports and blog posts and stuff there. And beyond that, it just remains to say, you know, subscribe to this, share it with your friends, tell them all about it, and I'll see you next time. Bye.